Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tarones. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Born to Write. I'm thrilled to have the author of Living a Spiritual Life in a Material World, Anna Gadman. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, Azul. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm excited to yeah. be here. Terrific. You know, what's so great is that we had a few moments to connect before this interview as well as before. And I feel such a sense of peace wash over me when we get to chat. So that's a beautiful gift. Thank mm. you for bringing that here. Oh, thank you. What's wonderful about this conversation is for anyone who's ever thought about writing a book that's wanted to put themselves into the world, maybe they don't even know why they feel this urge this calling. I think this book can help so many people understand what happens when you're living this spiritual life in a material world and why those things could happen. Why a book? Uh, We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I wanted to tell the audience a little bit about your journey because that's one of the most interesting parts of this. As you talked about this journey of, of being, you know, I would say a spiritual leader, teacher, somebody who's in the world of sharing their truth and knowledge, it's not always a straight path. People always wonder, how did you get here? And so let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk a little bit about like your early life and how you sort of arrived at this understanding that there's something more to this material world than meets the eye. Yeah. Yeah. So I always say that I was born into a life of extremes. So let's start with childhood in Israel, finished high school with low grades, low self-esteem, swore I'd never go back to school, alcohol and rage in my family. So kind of that's how I began my life. Like, kind of like Cinderella, and ended up (laughs) like a year later as a fashion model, you know, in Elle magazine and Marie Claire. Um, And so that was a huge leap that I did not expect. And so then in my 20s, I was living in Paris and living a very materially gratifying life, but I really felt empty inside. And I I always say that I appreciate my years in Paris the older I get. Right. (laughs) When I lived there, I felt empty inside. And so life took me, you know, I was there for a decade. I worked in New York. I lived in Paris and all all over the world with, you know, the the biggest designers and magazines and ended up going back to school to get a degree. And finally, I knew what I wanted and I was ready to go back to school. And I got a, a PhD in education, adult education and spirituality. And so here I jumped again, right? right? I jumped again from being Cinderella to being the princess as a fashion model. And now as a fashion model, which is often considered like so superficial, I was now having an intellectually rich life and a spiritually rich life and a family that I was raising. But I had picked up along, along my spiritual journey, a common belief, which you may relate to and your listeners might as well. That in order to be truly spiritual, we need to live without material desires or have any material needs. And we need to live very humble lives. Mm-hmm. Is that something that, that, oh, yeah. that you're familiar with? Right. It's actually a lot of the teachings out there, to be truthful, that this is how you yeah. have to be live. Live if you want to be spiritual. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so where does it live most of humanity? <laughs> it <laughs> lives out, outside of this. Like, we're not really spiritual because we... We have to pay bills and we have kids to raise and, you know, we have parents to take care of and we have communities that we support. We're just, we're in the world 
And so we can't really be spiritual. And that's what I felt. I felt I wasn't really spiritual. I guess I really am not spiritual yet because I cannot give up material pleasures because I was having experiences of elation and transcendence and joy and pleasure at material things, at creations, the artistic creations or the books or even technology. Human creation is a part of, it's an expression of the spiritual realm, right? It's an expression of someone's spirit, someone's ingenuity, someone's love, someone's care, someone's dedication and hard work. And so I was experiencing these spiritual experiences by participating and experiencing and engaging with the material world. So that's why I felt that I just wasn't spiritual enough. But it turned out I had an aha moment, which I'm happy to share, where I suddenly realized that the two actually interweave. And I realized that that that's what I need to teach and show how they interweave. Instead of valuing the spiritual and then saying, oh, the material things here today, gone tomorrow. When actually, when we believe that material things are just here today, gone tomorrow, we're contributing to landfill because we're saying they have no value. And the truth is that if we saw a rose, we'd appreciate its beauty. And if we see a tree, we appreciate its beauty. And yet when it comes to anything created by humans, then the spiritual teachings are that, you know, it has no value. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Now, it's okay not to attach yourself to material things, but you don't want to attach yourself to inner peace, which is spiritual either. If you try to attach yourself to inner peace, you're not going to feel it. You're going to be focused on attachment instead of inner peace, right? Right. So, and when you experience inner peace, it, like how often does it stay for two minutes or for the whole day or for your lifetime? So, even inner peace is here today, gone a minute later. So, that's kind of, you know, how I jumped from one extreme to the other. <laughs> right. You know, let's go back to that story. When I read the story that you were, you know, living in Israel. But the challenge about living in Israel for you, according to what you're writing, is that you didn't look like you belonged. You had this red freckled hair. You were in a a place where the majority, well, I would say almost everyone was practicing Jew, but that wasn't the tradition necessarily that you were part of. You became a family that was mixed. That brought a lot of friction. Tell me about what that felt like in looking backwards. What was the friction creating for you in that time? Mm. Well, so officially, the state of Israel is a Jewish state, you know, but there's a large number of Palestinians living there. And so it really is mixed and, and should be mixed, right? And not just a Jewish state, but that's a, that's a different issue. But when I grew up in the 60s, in the areas where I grew up, everybody was Jewish. And I think that anybody who married a non-Jew, the non-Jew converted to Judaism. It was at the beginning of the state. And so there was a lot of enthusiasm. And my mom didn't convert. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was Protestant, Swedish. She began her conversion and never finished it and always kept saying, you know, what's in the heart is what counts. And that was okay today. I totally agree with her. But as a child, I just wanted to be part of, you know, I just wanted to feel that I belong. And I didn't feel that. So I hid that I was not Jewish because in Judaism, it goes by the mother. Mm -hmm. And so I was not officially Jewish. And so I just, I wouldn't tell people about it. My neighbors knew about it. But when I went into school, high school, I didn't share that. So I I kind of walked around with this shameful secret, which Mm -hmm. is crazy today, but that's what I walked around with. And then I walked around with a shameful secret that my mom's an alcoholic and my dad's raging. So 
not the best conditions to for a child to be open to learning and acquiring knowledge. But yeah, that was my childhood. Right. I mean, there were other things and there were good things too, but that was a big part of it. Right. And we talked a little bit about, sometimes I have questions that are maybe beyond the scope of this, but one of the things that did come up that I'll share was, how did you not know that that actually was exactly what you needed to be the ideal situation, to be the spiritual person that you are today? Because maybe if you weren't, that may not have, that not having that experience maybe wouldn't have brought you to the place that you are. So it just made me think of, huh, maybe it was the perfect condition. It just doesn't seem like it based on some other values. It it wasn't always pleasant, obviously, but that's right. a big wonder I had. It's like the divine shows up when it chooses, right? It doesn't, right. It doesn't and, and, come and in I, ways that we want. Yeah. And I think that today, looking back at it, I was given a life of extremes because we live on a planet that of duality, right and wrong, light and darkness, good and bad. And so, and that allows us to choose because as humans, we have the power to choose. So the extremes are one thing and then the seemingly opposite of it. And I was given these extremes in order to grow my soul, to transcend them, and then to find formulas and processes and methods so that people could, in simple ways, transcend these extremes that we all experience to certain degrees, because we live on a planet that's very dualistic in its thinking. Right. And you mentioned in your book that there's this four keys to the spiritual material balance which are the focus of your work. Uh, I'm trying to expanded presence, attentive listening, inspired action, faith-filled knowing. Let's talk a little bit about these four keys, how they came about, and what are the general principles of each one? Yeah, so my work, I mean, the book came out two years ago, and, and the work has obviously deepened, but that was definitely the focus then, and still is to an extent. But the four keys really came out of my own experience and working with others, just observing these universal principles and that the underlying characteristics of all spiritual experiences, although we experience them in very subjective ways, but the underlying characteristic is the sense of expansiveness. And we know it when we see a sunset or when we are at the Grand Canyon or when we have a child smile at us or touch us and wants to hold our hands and our heart melts. We have this, what I call an expansive experience. And so when I realized that, I figured, okay, the first key is expansive presence. How can we have this experience of expansiveness that's intentional so that we can create spiritual experiences intentionally? Because otherwise, it's like lighting fires. If we don't know how to light a fire, then it's random. But once we know, we can create an entire humanity from it, right? Right. And so expansive presence is the first key, which is really connecting to a more expansive, enlightened, a larger version of yourself. And in the book, I go into very simple, practical ways that are accessible to you throughout your day that you can expand to this expansive presence. And so then key number two is attentive listening. And that's the second thing I realized in my doctoral studies. And that was that once you expand your state of mind, your consciousness, you become aware of information that was not available for you a second ago when you were in a more constricted or rational state of mind. Um, And it makes a lot of sense. It's like seeing the map on a GPS on your phone, you know, where you just see the next two minutes of your drive and looking at a big old fashioned kind of paper map, right? Where you can see the entire city and you see the relationship and So when you expand your consciousness without knowing it rationally, 
you become aware of larger interdependent factors of any given situation that your attention is focused on. And so you begin to receive what's called intuitive knowing. Mm-hmm. And so the second key is really listening attentively. It's not efforting. It's not willing something to be. It's actually the first key is expanding your consciousness, feeling the joy or feeling the bliss or feeling the love, and then just quietly sitting back in a sense Mm -hmm. and just waiting for this information and just listening to the universe speaking to us into wisdom coming from within us. And that happens when we're in an expansive state, whether we are aware of it or not. So even a team who's working and feel that they're in the zone, they had a great creative session and they say we were in the zone, they expanded their consciousness, even though they might not be spiritual or talk about it in the terms that I'm talking about. But they suddenly had this expansive perspective. They opened up to more possibilities than they had before. And they had all these creative ideas that kind of took their project to a whole other level. So that's what occurs with key number one and key number two. And then key number three is inspired action. It's like once you have all these new ideas or understandings about the project that you're working on or a life situation or a relationship, whatever intuitive guidance or external prompts that have come into your awareness, it's time to act upon them. And you want to do that with inspiration. It's not about just sitting in meditation and having an insight. It's about taking that insight now and manifesting it in the material world, in your daily life. And so the third key is inspired action, manifesting your dreams, your goals, your vision, your purpose. And then the final key, key number four, is faith-filled knowing because it really takes building your faith in order to trust that the universe is that you are part of this interdependent universe and that it is giving you feedback and responding to you and communicating with you and guiding you along your way. And so faith-filled knowing is this knowing that we have for a second where we go, wow, this was just a miracle. This was just a synchronistic event, but these happen all the time. We're just not aware of them when we're more constricted in our thinking or fearful. But when we expand, suddenly we see miracles happening, you know, throughout our day and synchronistic events. And that helps build our faith that we are part of something larger and more wondrous than we can often even imagine. So those are the four keys that you kind of go through and intentionally kind of pay attention to and and work with in order to grow spiritually and materially as well. Right. For those people who are listening and maybe they've heard the word manifesting or manifestation, people have all sort of notions about this. Is this something that we are doing? Is it something that happens to us? Help us just clarify when we say manifesting, what are we referring to? Okay, so you have an idea, you have a thought that comes from the non-physical world, right? You have an idea, a thought, and now you want to make it happen. And so you go about making it happen. You create the conditions for it. And that's manifesting. So you create the conditions either through some work in the world that you do to create the conditions for it. If it's you want a certain amount of money and you go and get a job or you want to have a create an event and you start organizing the event. So we need to we have ideas as the human species. We have the capacity to travel like a portal from the spiritual to the material, from the imaginal to manifesting, from visioning to creating. And so manifesting is really 
the part where we create the physical material conditions for something to occur. And it, doing that requires two things. Whatever work in the world needs to be done in order to create the conditions, but also your state of mind and being needs to kind of adjust. If you're going to have an event and you want it to be a joyful event, you're going to want to tap into joy and excitement and generosity and fun or sacredness, whatever the intention of your event is. So you need to shift your state of mind. And they talk about it in the law of attraction often, right? That you need to shift your vibrational state. It's very simple. If you want to have a joyous event and a fun event, then you're going to have to tap into some fun things to do for your guests. And then you're going to have to prepare the event with physical things so it actually can occur. And all of that process is what we call manifesting. That's really helpful. So a lot of people might think, well, manifesting is sitting in a room hoping and wishing. And really, it's, it's the creation of maybe what people would call it thought or visioning. And then the manifesting part comes with those bringing what's in the spiritual world, what's in the, the realm of it hasn't been seen materially into the material yeah. world by the doing, by the acting. Yeah. Okay. The acting and changing yourself, you're a physical thing as well. So by changing your state of being or state of mind to the intention that you want to create, that has to change as well, right? But that's part because you're part of the, of, of the physical realm. So you need to adjust your conditions in order to fit the intention. Right. And so and many I think people, it, and, and, yeah. I was saying so yeah. many people miss this. I think the part that you just described is like the shift is, is within you as well, not just in the knowing or thinking or creating the idea right. of and the doing. There is the, the in-between, which is you. You are the thing that's also needing to be present and, and yeah. doing. Right. I mean, if, if, if I can say, it's like it's taken billions of years of evolution to arrive to where we are today, that we have this wondrous planet, that you and I are alive, where we're each a unique celestial event, right, after billions of years. And there is this notion in the spiritual world or in the law of attraction that really, like you said, I'll sit in my room, I'll envision something, and it will just occur. Now, sometimes things happen really fast after you think of them. And then many times they don't. The reason they do sometimes occur fast is because without your knowing, the conditions were ripe for this to occur. Right. But many times you need to create the conditions, just like it's taken so billions of years of evolution. Why should you be sitting in your room and just fantasizing and things just occur? You need to create the conditions. Now, if the conditions are already there and your state of mind is prepared for it, then there's things that occur really quickly. But that's just because you began paying attention to it. Otherwise, other things, you need to work for it, you know, like the book that I had to write. And that was hard work for me. Right. Right. And, and it probably is for most writers, but I had to create the conditions in order to, for the book to happen. It wouldn't just happen for me thinking about it and it would just manifest like this because I just thought about a book, right? Right. No, in fact, and, you yeah. talked about your book and when you talked, described it about you wanted to just run away. I understand yes. that feeling and everybody who's a writer goes, yep, that's <laughs> we run away physically sometimes, like I'm not doing this or run away and organize the junk drawer or mop right. the bathroom, anything but the doing, which is really interesting. What do you think this resistance comes from and that feeling of running so, away? So I'll answer, but I also have a, a question for you about it. So sure. 
You know, I think at the end of it, and I'm, I'm giving you an answer from my own experience and observing myself, I think that we, we so long to have these spiritual experiences and to be our full self. We all long for that, but it takes effort. It takes an effort, but it's not a hard effort. It's a letting go effort. It's allowing, really, it's allowing love and light and creativity to come, the life force to come through us. So we have this duality, again, where we're longing for this, but we run away from it. But once we're in the zone, it's like, right, it's like hard to sit down and write. But then once you're like writing, suddenly we feel so excited and all the ideas and it was put so well. And there's so much excitement because suddenly we're allowing, we're in the zone and we're allowing the flow of chi, of energy, of love, of, of creativity to come through us. So right. it's it's good it's good to be aware of that that we long for something but then we do everything to not be there but if we could just take those steps chunk things down have smaller goals then suddenly it's easier to get into the zone where we're we're aligned between our spiritual self and material self and that's when writing flows as well. Right. And you talk about this sort of this intuitive knowing this idea of this listening. I think Something we share in common. I know you created a model that was used to found an elementary school. I was an educator for 24 years and I saw so many things I wanted to fix in education. But one of the things that really struck me is when you said that you had this to quiet your mind and you heard this message saying that said, I'm trying to get you to paradise and you're fighting me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That was, yeah. Talk about that. Talk about those messages that come that when we're quieted, we can hear and why people sometimes are maybe confused or not sure what to do with those kinds of intuitive knowings or listening. Yeah. So really, I, you know, I created the four keys to, so that there's a formula that's easier for others to hear those messages and trust them and, and create the conditions for them to happen intentionally. But for me, it was like a trial and error. But I became more and more sensitive to when I was in an expansive state where I could hear messages or when I was in a constricted state, which is more fearful, even if we're not aware about it, of it, but it's more fearful, more cautious, more rational. And then you can't hear things like this. Mm, um, yeah. And so, 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 so it's really a practice of paying attention to, ooh, this is a moment of expansion. And again, in the book, I, I think I describe, you know, what expansive thoughts are like and what expansive emotions are like and what expansive sensations in our body are like so that people can begin to feel who have just shifted to a more expansive state. And so I was pretty, you know, I was beginning, I was beginning to be very sensitive to that. But this, but the specific meditation that you're talking about, there was no doubt. I mean, because it wasn't just, you know, I feel more happy or I feel more inner peace. This was, I sat down for meditation. The story was that we were planning leaving Israel once again. That was now seven years ago. And I wanted to move to the UK. My spouse wanted to move to California and we we're going back and forth. And I felt I was losing the battle because California <laughs> seemed to have more options for work and for schooling for our kids and all of that. And I was just feeling bitter and angry. And, you know, I, I brought the patriarchy in <laughs> I, 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 everything, you know, I was losing the battle, <laughs> everything but the kitchen sink. Exactly. And, and, you know, 
I think three weeks into it, I kind of sit down in meditation I hadn't done for three weeks, which also is an indication I was going more and more into willing something and into wanting it to be one thing and all of my childhood wounds and never being listened to and my needs weren't being met. All of that came into play. So how could I know what's right and what's not right? And I sat in meditation. I, I literally sat down and just said, and I, I, I had tears in my throat kind of. I was by myself, but I, I became kind of tearful as I said, I'm back. I think I said, I'm, I'm, I'm back. I'm sad, but I'm here. And boom, I just heard this message, not a real voice, but in my head, so clear. I'm trying to take you to paradise and you're fighting me. So when that happens, you can't doubt it because this was like, I couldn't have thought of this statement by myself with the state I described to you a minute ago, right? I mean, I was, that was the last thing that I expected. So when those happen, if you fight those, then you're really going to have a hard time because when messages come this clear, it's like, okay, I had to swallow my pride and I do feel that I live in paradise now. So I, I think it was a good guidance. Right. But yeah, but other times it's not as clear. Right. And you, you talked a little bit about this. Even people maybe, maybe confused by the fact the difference between things that are already known, the spiritual things, the things of being and their religion and the other things that come to influence them. But one of the things that struck me is that people have these experiences that you're talking about here, maybe not in quiet meditation, maybe because they've never meditated, but they had the, maybe the experience of, you know what? I should do this. They don't know why, where it came from. And then they act on it because they just do. And then something wonderful happens from it or even unexpected. And I, so if you've ever had that feeling like, you know what? I should, I should walk down this street. I never walked this way before, but I think I should. And you follow that. And it's not saying that it's, it's an exact thing, but in your book, you describe, I think as a woman who said, you know, I should get off here. I should pull over here. I would think it was the rainbow story. And, uh, Right. With a flat tire. With the flat yeah. tire who had pulled over at a time, didn't know, just had yeah. that listening moment where they're like, you should pull over here. Yeah. And she followed yeah. it and she describes the idea that she was going to put air in her tire, but there was a screw in her tire. It was terrible rain. Yeah. She was in the middle of really nowhere that was, you want to be stranded. And yet right at that, that gas station was a, <laughs> a screw in your tire repair shop for, for lack of a better word. And she right. was able, she's like, huh. This is exactly what I needed at this moment. What are the chances right. that they'd have a repair shop for tires at this spot? But it's exactly what I needed because 10 minutes away from here, I would be stuck and stranded. That's the sort right. of thing you're talking about in this listening and yeah. knowing, is it not? It is. It is. And, and it's such a great example because I want to bring spirituality into our daily life because these are the moments. I mean, you know, dealing with a flat tire or 10 minutes away from a flat tire, but it's like there is things tell us, or there's like there's an inner knowing, or there's inner guides, or some wisdom, some more expansive wisdom that guides us. And if we keep arguing with that voice all the time, then beyond the fact that we suffer all the time, we feel that we're forsaken and left alone, and that we can't have spiritual experience. But if we pay attention, like she did, and she stopped at the gas station, and then she before I think she even saw that she had a flat tire while she was filling gas, she looked at the sky and there was a rainbow and that allowed her to have an expansive experience. Right. So first she listened to an inner voice that said, I should stop for gas here. Although she says, I never stop for gas at this station. Then she sees the rainbow and she has this moment of appreciation about her life and the beauty of life and 
how awesome is that? I'm at the gas station looking at a rainbow. And then she sees a flat tire or, or a screw. And then she, she looks up and there's um, tire repair, which th- there isn't in, in most gas stations. So, um, yeah, you really have to listen attentively and be open and pay attention to these moments. They're small moments of expansiveness when you say, you know, I've never gone down this street, right? It's like these shifts that happen in our emotional state and they're so tiny, but boom, suddenly there's a bit of joy and there's a bit of gratitude and there's a bit of contentment. And those are your cues that you've shifted and when you shift everything begins to align much better right and then you feel more fulfilled and things are happening in the right way versus always in the wrong way that's great that that example is a wonderful example of that knowing and that listening and the doing part the the part that requires you to take action when you hear i think a lot yeah. of people maybe have silenced that voice or stopped listening for a variety of reasons what do you say to people when they come to you to, to maybe work with you or connect with you about your work, and they have maybe a little dissonance between who they are, who they see themselves as, and maybe the religion that they were born into or that they are practicing. What do you say to that person who's conflicted? Because you could say the universe, you could say God, you call that thing, whatever maybe you choose, but what do you, how do you help those people come to an understanding that they already have inside of them? Right. Well, I think the first thing is really to re-educate people, to deconstruct kind of their thinking. I had a woman I, I worked with, and she, she came to me and said, you know, I'm not very spiritual. I've never been spiritual. You know, she's living more. I mean, she, she, I think her spouse had a good job or something, and she was kind of wealthy. And, and she was just looking, searching for meaning and purpose. And so I had to show her how she could have this expansive experience, which creates fulfillment right now. And the more we did that, the more we did small exercises where she could experience this expansion and fulfillment, she realized that she was having a spiritual life her entire life, mm. first of all, right? right? And then she shared something which for me was highly unusual because I don't have that. But she said, you know, I have, I think it was like the third session or so. She says, you know, I have this kind of like an angel on my shoulder. And when I tap into it, it always tells me what to do. And I thought, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second, and not spiritual. Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> and she was just, it was matter of fact, she'd never shared it. She didn't feel she was spiritual. She wasn't religious. And we are deprived of something that is our birthright, that we're, we're all having spiritual experiences all the time. We're all having small moments, glimpses of expansive experiences where we feel more gratitude or more joy or more care for others. I mean, even through pain, seeing somebody suffering and our heart goes out. I mean, even that is more of an expansive experience of caring for each other. We all have that throughout our day, but we just think, oh, it's a caring moment. It's a gratitude moment. But it's really, it's this expansive experience of this larger reality of the more whole self that we are, that is both spiritual and, and material. And so the more you practice it, the more like anything, the more your senses become acute and the more you can pay attention, oops, I just had a small expansion. Oops, I just had this good feeling that just showed up. So, and then you begin trusting the information that comes in when you have this good feeling because you know that it's the universe or God or however you want to call it, your inner wisdom, your intuition, you start trusting it more. And that's the faithful knowing that kind of builds. Right. 
So I think that people are scared. I mean, people who are doubting are people who go, I so, because otherwise they wouldn't be sitting in my office, right? They so want it, but they don't trust it. The mm-hmm. family takes it out of you, religion that promises it to you, but takes it out of you. The school system takes it out of you. Your career and achievement, college, all of that, it's all about doing, 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 and it takes it out of you. So, so how are you going to trust it? So, but, but here you are sitting with me. You have come here. So you obviously want me to help you. So that's enough. And then just showing them one thing and another thing that they're already doing, that they're already okay. They're not flawed. And I'm going to teach them how to be really spiritual. No, I'm going to show them how they're already spiritual and how they have it in them. I'm just going to pay attention or show them how to pay attention. So they go, oh, wow, I didn't know that that was spiritual. I didn't know that that was spiritual. And suddenly, it's something that's really part of their daily life, and they don't need to feel split. Right. It's sort of like you can identify the virtues of spirituality, even if you're not spiritual, that, you know, virtues are really easy to identify and they should be the markers of a, a spiritual person. And they universally are accepted things like love and generosity and kindness, et cetera. But in so many religious settings, those things are talked about, but they're harder to see. Uh, spiritual people can see these things in which all people, as you say, are spiritual at different degrees when they're able to have this ability to stop and listen and be in tune with it. You described someone in the book that mentioned they were having, they saw their family as troubled with all the things going on, all the things that were wrong. And then they they found themselves amongst some roses in nature, which is, I think, a lot about this principle of understanding is that we are not separate from nature, right? We are nature. Tell us about that experience. I don't want to, I seem like I kept keep telling about your stories and I should just let you do them. Yeah, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. So, So I want to preface that with there's research finally that's catching up with our experiences, with human experiences, that nature has expansive healing properties. And there's research that shows that someone who is healing from surgery in a room with a window and a tree will heal faster than someone who has no window and there's just a wall. Right. So those are simple, concrete ways that slowly, slowly research and science is proving that nature has healing properties, which all of us kind of know, because the minute you spend time in nature, suddenly there's this rhythmic entrainment, and suddenly you feel joyful, or you sit under a tree, and suddenly you feel so peaceful, and you go, you know, I should take more time to enjoy life. Or you see a huge tree, and you go, I I was just at Armstrong Woods, which is half an hour away from where I live, and it's like a redwood forest, and you just, you know, like 1300 year trees and you just go, they've seen us do, they've seen us fight and they've seen us love and they've seen us war and they've seen us do everything and they're still there. And suddenly you go, okay, I'm going to reset the proportions in my own life. So even that is guidance from nature about how to live our life. So nature has this power. And I think even the Buddha speaks about a practice of looking into a rose mm-hmm. and, and experiencing bliss that and so this specific story was a woman in a workshop and i had each participant pick a rose i had brought beautiful roses from my garden and they each got a rose and i just told them to just we had done an exercise before but basically they looked into the rose and just took it in and she had dealt with some troublesome issues in her family with her child and felt that her child was kind of flawed and he couldn't fit in. And why wasn't he able to kind of fit in like the other kids? And 
And she picked a rose and looked at it and saw that the rose wasn't perfect. It had something that was a bit, you know, a leaf or something that was flawed, so to speak. Um, but that, that's the rose that she picked. And suddenly, again, attentive listening, she was in this expansive state because beauty is a gateway to an expansive presence. So if you surround yourself with beauty and pay attention to it or spend time in nature and see its beauty, you can enter an expansive state of presence. And she could see a parallel between the so-called flawless of the rose and the flaw flawness of her child. And suddenly she felt, but wait a second, this rose is perfect the way that it is. It's so beautiful. And that helped her love her child more and or accept her child more and the destiny that he had, which was to do something different than all the other kids did. And to just love her child for who her child was. And so look how a rose kind of helped a woman regain an aspect of herself that was shut down. Again, kind of like me wanting to go to the UK while my spouse was pushing for California. And just closing my heart and willing something. And here she was trying to will her kid to go to this school and not to that school. And suddenly this rose just allowed her to find healing and acceptance and love for her child. and trust the universe that it's the best for him. And so this is the power of nature. And this was just a small rose, right? Right. And I think that's the thing I want to help people see. You do see these opportunities. Maybe you're not paying attention, but being a spiritual person, being someone who wants to find purpose and belonging, which don't we all, yeah. can find it. But following these four principles can really help. Let's talk a little bit about yeah. education because your early life in education wasn't pleasant the way you described it. Yeah. Kind of the outcast or the, the outlier or didn't feel it fit in or the teachers weren't really fair or just. And school can be an isolating place for children. And unfortunately, yeah. we're probably not doing enough to nurture young people through. And yeah. um, one of the greatest things I think we miss is the opportunity to teach listening or to for adults to listen. Great things would happen, yeah. I believe. And this is where we share sim similar thoughts is that great things would happen if we listen to children, to me, they're closer to nature, even in their flaws, than we might yeah. think we are. And they know a lot more, not because they have wisdom of time, they just have innate natural wisdom. And then we yeah. school it out of them, right? So what right. was your, your intention or your hopes when you were helping start this elementary school and kind of teach more uh, spiritual yeah. principles, but more natural way of living in yeah. schools? Yeah. You know, I, I always say that I, I've been in the field of education, well, now I'd say like 50 years or like 55 years. And the first 12 years, I, I was in training of what never to do. <laughs> so that was part of my my training. I, I know that today, right? You're right. Um, but so then the, when when my son, my first son was in first grade, it was a public school because of political things in the community. They didn't allow us to go to a, a, another school that was more holistic and he ended up in the public school that was was okay but I was just feeling that they were they were stifling him and he had this big spirit and by the third week he was slumping he was carrying his bag and he was just slumping and he just didn't look like he had joy and he had so much joy in him he loved to learn and so I I ended up starting homeschooling not knowing what homeschooling is about even and just took him out of school, I think a month after he started first grade, and called someone who I'd heard 
in another town. She'd been in an interview or, or in a newspaper. I, I called her and I asked her, how do I homeschool? What do I do? And basically, you know, within a week or 10 days, it was like, okay, he's not going back to school anymore. And so I, I began homeschooling for four years. So he was in first grade till fourth grade. And my younger son was nine months when we began homeschooling. But I guess because I'm an educator at heart, like I know that you are, I was looking for some system that would kind of systematize what we were doing because we went for the unschooling method, which is really to allow the kid to go for the interests that they have or interests that the family has. And not, so we didn't have school at home with books and a curriculum. We just learned from every situation and we turned every life situation into a learning opportunity. And it was fun because we were so alive. We were learning from everything, cooking and, you know, baking. And my spouse had lived in Japan for three years. So my oldest son wanted to learn Japanese. It's like, you know, it's like things just evolved in an organic way. But I wanted to find some system that would be holistic, kind of like I had studied in my graduate studies, in my undergraduate and graduate studies in San Francisco. And so I, I just sat down and did a mind map of how I had learned in school and just created this original model. And then, you know, in two weeks, it was all down. It was all out. It was like that, how excited I got about it. And then we slowly, you know, with a friend, we opened the school and all of that. So, so, but the idea was to create something that's holistic, that looks at math and the spirit of math. Because if you look at the spirit of math, you see the big mathematicians that have looked at nature and created formulas, right? Mathematical formulas based on phenomena in nature. So suddenly, mathematics becomes so exciting because you also see the spirit of it, the beauty of it, the order of it. Spirit, beauty, order are all spiritual qualities. And here they appear in math, which is so-called such a rational discipline. So it was really about creating a holistic experience for the children, but systematizing it a bit so the parents didn't have to go through fears that their kids wouldn't make it and they wouldn't be successful and they could pass exams, they could fit into society, and at the same time, give them, you know, allow their spirit to run free. And it's amazing, like you say, it's like kids have less defense mechanisms. And so I think that's why they're more connected to, you know, we live in an interdependent world. I mean, it's not just a statement. So everything is connected. And I think that kids are just more connected. So they know what's right and what's wrong. And they know what feels good and doesn't. And they feel in their body when something doesn't feel good. And if they're allowed to share it, then they'll share it. And they're stifled. And, you know, they have to hide it. And Right. Yeah. So yeah, we talk about this forever. So you could, yeah, no, this is some of the stuff I was like, Ooh, I want to talk. Uh, what let's talk a little bit about the writing process. This is a, as a, a podcast about writing. I get so caught up. I forgot, <laughs> which is fine. But so when you did this book, you, you, so you obviously have lots you could teach about. And this is a question people have when they're building something that's a part of their, their work or their, their, yeah. they're trying to grow a brand or kind of elevate their authority or credibility. What was the ways you, you used to get clear about the book? And what was your process for writing it? Well, it was clear from the beginning that once I, I, I discovered and developed the four keys to spiritual material balance, that that's the, the, the center piece of the book. And, and then 
you know, again, I, I kept looking for help. I asked for help. I asked for help. I asked for help, even not someone specific. I just said, I'm looking for support. It's hard for me to write. I need some guidance. And it took a while for it to arrive. But when we actually moved, so I, I finished my doctorate degree just before we moved from Israel to California seven years ago. And then I was looking like who would help me actually structure it. And, and things kept happening. A friend sent me an email of someone who specializes in promoting authors and experts. And so I joined his course and he had a course there about how to write a book. And suddenly I was introduced to Jack Canfield and suddenly I was in a Jack Canfield workshop. And slowly, slowly like this, I advanced. And then eventually I found a local person who became my writing coach. Mm-hmm. And I know I, I know that you do that as well, right? You yeah. coach. Yeah. yeah. That's correct. And that really helped. He had been a therapist before. He had written a few books and he was a writer. He'd been on a spiritual journey. So he just fit perfectly. And so, for example, when I was stuck, he would say, okay, close your eyes and it, uh, breathe. And he would just kind of allow me to, again, I guess, expand mm-hmm. a bit. And depending if it was a focus or something, that specifically that I was stuck on. So I'd close my eyes, I'd have a minute or two, and then he'd say, okay, 10 minutes now and just write whatever comes out. And I'd just sit there for 10 minutes. And if I was on a roll, then after 10 minutes, then he he would just let me go because the idea was for me to be on a roll. So those were for, that was one way that he'd get me unstuck. He also brought a lot of my story in. Like one of the things that Jack Canfield told me in a workshop I did with him, you have to bring your story in. Because I thought, I'm not going to drag my alcoholic mom into the story. Like, why would I even want to do that? You have done all the healing around it. You know, it's private. And, you know, from Jack Canfield to the coach that I had, so you have to make it more alive with your own stories. And I didn't want to to indulge in my own life. Mm -hmm. So I had to find this perfect balance so people could relate to me and but that I wasn't like just me 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 and so it was more like I shared things that served the purpose and again I was listening inside if something didn't feel right it went out when I wrote my biography I had had detailed of stories about my parents and it was beautiful but they got out because suddenly it was a biography it wasn't about this the four keys. And so that went out and that will go into some other books. So mm-hmm. it's again, it's listening to what felt right. But I was true to my intention to share these four keys and those universal principles and anything that would support it and would make it practical so that anyone could do it. I tr- so I, I had different principles that I kind of worked on. I wasn't trying to teach in a sense of this is what you should do or this is how you'd be spiritual. It was more let me give you an idea of what expansive sensations in your body feels like. Right. Let me give you an idea of what expansive thoughts feels like. I'm giving you these ideas just so that you have something to anchor it in, but I don't want to define your experience. So these are just some examples. So that was important for me. I really didn't want to just be, let me tell you, I've had a spiritual journey and this is what you should do. I really wanted to give people tools that they could then go off and do and do it by themselves. So well, that's great. Those were like principles that I, and, and, and I think I'm, I think I'm good in the logic of things. And so, because I wanted to be really simple and practical. So if it felt like it was too convoluted, either my coach or I would say, okay, it's just too, there are too many assumptions in here. 
that are hidden? How do we simplify this? And so we simplified it. It was, he'd actually, he'd come twice a week, I think, and sit for three hours each. Yeah. And, and I'd write in his presence. And whenever I was stuck, we'd talk about an idea. And I mean, without him, this book would not have been out. But I was determined to have the book out no matter what. So the universe gave him to me and it was <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> That's wonderful. I appreciate that. What you experience, uh, a lot of writers experience, which is, oh, this isn't about me. I don't want my story in here. Yeah, I don't. It's not as important as what I'm teaching. And the truth is we make our meaning and connection with you as the human so that we can right. attach to the thinking you have. Otherwise, it's just like you're throwing thoughts at us and they're whizzing by us. But when you come walking towards us with your thought and hand us you know, your thought is that little girl who didn't feel like she belonged, then we're so yeah. willing to say, yeah, I'll take that from you because I know yeah. that you, that you understand what suffering is and that you won't, right. you won't lead me somewhere unsafe because you know what it's like to need safety. So I really appreciate you. And you're, you're right. There is a balance. You don't, I mean, even memoirs, you got to be cautious because there's only so much we can process, but I thought you did a beautiful job of balancing it. Uh, I love the stories in there and the stories of the people that you've served and helped. That was also really yeah. lovely because that's another anchor for us all. So yeah. lovely, Anna, to have you here. Her book, Living a Spiritual Life in a Material World, is out and available on Amazon. Um, you can find it at Barnes Noble. You can also, we'll link it up in our show notes. Where would we want to send people to learn more about you, Anna? Because I'm sure there's going to be plenty of people that are wondering, gosh, maybe there's something here that I've been ignoring. So where do, right. where, where do they find you? Yeah. So the best place to find the book and a free gift and courses and all of that is on the website. And the website is AnnaGatman.com. So Anna is A-N-N-A-G-A-T-M-O-N, AnnaGatman.com. Wonderful. Well, it's been a joy and a privilege. I really loved your book. And I hope people that are on a quest to learn more about spiritual living, please find this book. Anna, thank you. It's been, a, it's been wonderful. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And, and thank you for inviting me onto your show. Of course. Join me again for another interview for great authors who talk about their story, how they got there, and why they feel like they're born to write. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave an honest review, and you can always find me at coachazul.com.